has a story to tell. Multiple stories, probably. After all, Walt Whitman said it best. We contain multitudes. But what's most important is that these multitudes, they're all part of the bigger story. God's story. Every story is part of God's story. And that means that everyone's stories, your story, is important. Not just those who talk about theirs on Sundays. And so welcome to From the Other Side of the Pulpit, a podcast where we hear faith stories from those who don't preach on Sundays. There's no agenda, and there's nothing to sell, because this is an effort to just listen. Because even if we do all agree that everyone's stories are important, how many of us know the narratives of others in our congregations? (laughs) So get comfortable and listen. Who knows? You may just hear your own story one of these days. I'm your host, Sam Bertram, and we'll be right back. So if you're listening to this and you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit us at LJ First United Methodist Church, home of the From the Other Side of the Pulpit podcast. Worship times are at 8.45 and 11 a.m. Or you can join us online at fumclj.org from the comfort of home. Even if we're not the right fit for you, we'll help you find the right place for you together. Just visit fumclj.org now. Today, we're talking to the Reverend Alan Tarr, my favorite deacon. And I know, Reverend, isn't he one of those preach-on-Sunday types? Well, no, he's not. Now retired, he's dedicated his life to ministry on the other side of the pulpit. And so I can think of no one better to help us start this podcasting journey together. And so... The Reverend Alan Tarr. So the first question is, how did you become a Christian? Uh, I guess I was basically born a Christian. Okay. <laughs> uh, born into a Christian family, especially my mom. Oh, sure. And uh, always went to church. I was dedicated in a Baptist church in Chicago shortly after birth. And um, so, were you born in Chicago? Were you born born in Chicago? Okay, all right. Lived in the city of Chicago for my first five years, and then we Mm -hmm. moved to the suburbs. And uh, when we moved there, um, Mom went to a Disciple of Christ church. So I was a Disciple of Christ. um, Really, most well. The rest of the time we lived in the Chicago area. At age 12, we moved to Florida and went to a Baptist church again in sure. Palmetto, Florida. And uh, then during my high school years, we moved across the river and went to Disciples of Christ again. <laughs> so I was in Disciple of Christ church through um, my high school years, uh, junior college, and 
off, went off to college, it was occasional church, you know, <laughs> didn't belong to a church, and um, kind of was a nominal Christian for a while. Then, so. Now, was it a big jump between Disciples of Christ and, and Baptist? Not really? I don't not, know much about Disciples of Christ. Not much at all. <clears throat> Disciples of Christ is uh, strictly a New Testament church. Mm -hmm. uh, don't ever preach from the Old Testament. Really? Some Disciples of Christ do not do music. We did. Okay. But on a fairly subdued way. Okay. Um, a lot like Baptist. Uh, okay. A lot yeah. works oriented. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. It, sound, it sounds, I didn't know that about the Disciples of Christ, that they didn't do music. I remember some of the primitive Baptist churches I went to when I was a kid, um, they didn't do right. music at all. They did like the... What's that called? Shape note singing, like the soul oh, fed yeah, sort of right. stuff. They did, they did like that, but there were no instruments, yep. no instruments at all. Um, and I didn't know that about that they didn't te teach or preach from the Old Testament either. That's really interesting. So not a, not a big jump then. Well, of course, okay. I was not much into theology. At oh, that point. <laughs> sure, it didn't sure. matter. Yeah. Sure. Now, what about baptism? Were you which denomination were you baptized in? I was uh, dedicated as a baby in the Baptist Church. I was baptized by immersion uh, when we were in Palmetto, Florida, at age twelve. Oh, okay. <clears throat> and um, had no idea what it was all about. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, was that in the Baptist Church or Disciples Baptist of Christ? Baptist it was. Church. Okay. All right. So, how long did y'all live in Florida then? Uh, we lived in Florida through my junior college years. I lived there. My parents stayed in, in Florida after that. Um, I moved to Pensacola, Florida for um, junior, senior year, then graduate school. Oh, okay. And that's where Rachel and I met and got together and got married oh, sure. there. Did y'all meet then in school? Not exactly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I worked as my work-study program for my financial assistance at the switchboard of the school. Oh. Very small college, uh -huh. uh, University of West Florida. Oh, yeah, yeah. Over 2,000 students. Rachel was a student on campus at the time, lived in the dorms. When any student wanted to call home long distance, they had to go through the switchboard and uh. connect them to uh -huh. an outside trunk. For basically a year and a half, um, Rachel called home every weekend uh -huh. And often the trunks were all full, so I would just talk with whoever till there was an open trunk uh -huh. to go out. So I talked to Rachel for about 18 months without ever meeting her. Wow. She was dating, uh, she, no, she was roommates with a girl who was dating my little brother in the fraternity. Oh. Small school, and we never met until after I had graduated. <laughs> It goes on from there, a long uh -huh. story, but we just happened to it. meet. And, That's uh, awesome. 18 months you talked about really meeting. Wow. That was 50 years ago. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. <laughs> I don't feel like stories like that happen much anymore. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I don't know many people who talk like that um, without... But I think God was a part of that. <laughs> oh, sure, sure, of course. I definitely understand that. So, when did you end up in the Methodist Church? How did that happen? That happened... Uh, um, coincidentally, God incidentally, also with Rachel. Of course, I have my Baptist Disciple of Christ background. Rachel was raised uh, all her life in the Presbyterian Church. And uh, we lived in a, a little neighborhood in, in Pensacola. And there was an, a really nice Methodist church 
real nearby. <laughs> so we started going to the Methodist Church and uh, ended up, that's where we felt at home. Theologically, she's still Presbyterian, oh, sure. but, um, <laughs> uh, but we love the Methodist Church and have not left it since then. Yeah. That was 1974 and 5. Okay. Well, what was the name of that church? St. Mark United Methodist Saint Church. Mark. We could probably learn some things from St. <laughs> Mark United Methodist. Is that where you experienced your call? No. Um, <laughs> Call is an interesting concept to me, um, and I could probably talk about it at length, but I, I really think that God was calling me in some way way back in my high school years, um, but I wasn't having any of it, you know, it was just, I was, all, life was about Alan, you know, yeah. for all those years. And that went through my college years. It went through eight years of teaching. It went through nearly 30 years of corporate work at Bell South. <clears throat> I was almost always involved in the church, but again, pretty much nominally. You know, I taught Sunday school, did those sorts of things. Um, but I never felt that there was a particular gift that God had given me. Um, <clears throat> much later, after we had moved to Georgia, um, it was in 1996-7-8 um, I started feeling that there was something more in the church than just working on committees, teaching Sunday school sure. and God was working my, on me at that time but I had no idea what it was <clears throat> there was an elderly man in our church in Snellville, Centerville who um, went and visited the shut-ins and new visitors to the church every Tuesday and he was getting along in years and probably not safe for him to drive oh. he kept a little pad of paper in his pocket and he would write notes while he's driving <laughs> his name was Sid and I just felt led to ask Sid if I could join him on these visits that was in 1997 and he said, sure. So we, we were a team for three years. Really? Wow. Um, in May of 2000, Sid um, died. He was over 80 years old and he died. And so I kept up that ministry on my own that year. Uh, that was May of, the, of that year he died. In July of that year, our church, Zora United Methodist, decided to be a Stephen Ministry Church. Yeah, okay. And so I went to the lady who was in charge of educational part and said, do you think I could be a Stephen Minister? She said, sure, you know, come in. So that fall I went through Stephen Minister training, um, <clears throat> was commissioned as Stephen Minister in um, December, and I continued as a Stephen Minister for the, the succeeding years. Um, seven years later in 2007 unexpectedly I was able to take an early retirement from Bell South and um, which was you know really a gift sure. and Rachel said no, I think you ought to go to seminary <laughs> <laughs> and I thought about it and that was 2007 so I did I enrolled at um, Asbury Seminary in September of 2007 not knowing still what my gift was but it goes back to the caregiving aspect of Stephen ministry and in the seminary I knew I was not being called to be
be a pulpit preacher or run a church. And my assignment for clinical pastoral education, which you have to do in some areas, you know, was um, assignment as a chaplain to a hospice in, in the Snellville area. And um, same day one, when I entered my first patient's room, it was like an epiphany that I didn't hear God speaking, but it was like a light came on and the feeling of total peace came over me and it was, this is where you're supposed to be. So for the next 12 years, that's, that was my call. Yeah. My call. Yeah, that's amazing. And do you think to that particular, I mean, was it all fostered by that relationship with Sid, probably, in those early days of yeah. going? I went back to thinking in high school that um, for some reason, my friends and fellow students would come to me with their problems. Mm. And I didn't think anything about it at that time. But occasions like that throughout my life in looking in the rearview mirror, I saw them. Sure. And I firmly believe that God endows every one of us with at least one spiritual gift. And um, I kept mine pretty much to myself, you know, for 40, 50 years yeah. um, before realizing that it was a gift. And I always felt that I'd I was inadequate. I didn't, number one, deserve to serve God in a particular yeah. way, nor was I particularly gifted to do that. Um, but this series of events that I related kind of opened my eyes to that and to realize that it is a gift. And if we do not use the gift God gives us to bear fruit, we're like the tree that Jesus withered. And, oh, you know, yeah. Here's yeah. this tree that's made to bear fruit, and that's not. Um, burn it up. Yeah. So um, I think it's, that's a fairly common experience of people not necessarily denying their gift or their call, um, but you know, have that feeling of unworthiness or inadequacy or just fear. Oh, yeah. You know? But I think we're all gifted and we're all called in some way. Sure. Well, if you could help me figure out mine, that'd be, that'd be great. I'm still wondering. I'm still trying to figure it out myself. Um, so you talked a little bit about call being an interesting thing. It was sort of Rachel's pushing you maybe to... Or, or did you... Or was the that call, like that nudge separate and Miss Rachel just decided like you should probably go to seminary. I would put it this way. I'm a basically lazy person <laughs> and always have been. <laughs> when Rachel and I first got together we were both teaching school mm -hmm. and in the summer months when we were out for school, you know, uh, we both worked in the summer. Uh, I did that but I was basically really lazy. We'd lay around the house and do nothing. And but Rachel, it's summer. It's like <laughs> she never pushed me to anything, but Rachel is a very encouraging influence. And mm -hmm. she would encourage me that, you, you know, you've got more than just laying around the house. Um, and, you know, I had led Sunday school and Bible studies for a number of years now, getting towards the, the retirement from Bell South. And she just gently was saying, um, you know, wouldn't, I 
I really think it would be good if you went to, to seminary yeah. and just moved a little further with that, you know, the theological side of it and Bible study and yeah. all of that. So um, it wasn't in any way uh, a pushing, but it was a gentle encouragement. Oh, sure, <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. Now, what did you teach when you were a teacher? And how did you end up going from teaching to Bell South, the corporate world? Uh, I majored in biology as an uh-huh. undergrad, and uh, we were in Pensacola. And when I graduated, my first teaching assignment had nothing to do with biology or science. I was uh, I was uh, assigned to a an experimental school, uh-huh. uh, Title One school, for uh, students who just could not cope with the normal school system. Sure. Uh, so they started this vocational school um, for those students and they paired a vocational teacher with an academic teacher. I was the academic teacher paired with the refrigeration and air conditioning gotcha. okay. vocational teacher. Um, but they kind of just threw students into this mix. <laughs> so I had 12 to 18 year olds Uh, mixed together. Wow. I had trainable mentally retarded, emotionally disturbed to just regular kids that acted out in class. Sure. Uh, No uh, curriculum, no materials. And I was 21 years old. (laughs) Uh, Half of my students were bigger and stronger than I was. So anyway, I did that for four years and really had done all I could do with I had basically the same group of kids for four years. Okay. Half a day. That's so odd. Uh, I had done all I could do with them, so I transferred to a middle school, and I taught middle school science for four more years. Uh, I had gotten my master's in educational leadership, and I had applied for several administrative or supervisory positions, um, but I wasn't in the kind of the good old boy group, (laughs) and so I got real frustrated with that, and uh, decided to change careers. The uh, blessing was being being hired by Southern Bell, the old Southern Bell Telephone Company. Yeah. yeah, and did you enjoy working with them? I did. It was a very good company to work for. They were very good to me. Um, and, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Did you do your Master's in Educational Leadership at West Florida, too? Oh, oh, wow, okay. And Rachel yeah. did hers as well. She oh, did she? Master's also. Is it in Educational Leadership, no, too? hers is in uh, Computer... Um, Project management and computer okay. science. Oh, that's I don't. She went to work for the for the power company. Oh, Gulf okay. Power. Gotcha. And when I was transferred here by Southern Bell, she was transferred along with me to Georgia Power. Okay. But she taught too for a time, she right? Taught, she taught for an additional three years. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. And, then, and what did she teach? She taught. Um, everything <laughs> she taught English she she majored in speech okay so she taught English speech and drama and there was one year where she taught all three in seven different classrooms <laughs> yeah. and, and roamed the halls of Pine Forest High School with a with a cart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember those days. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the teachers coming around with their cart. Yeah, that's amazing, though. Um, that was a gosh. That sounds like a ministry uh, in and of itself. That experimental sort of teaching that you did. I can't imagine. Like, there's such a difference. 
I noticed, like with the youth group here, between the ages of 12 and 18, and having them all together, um, trying to meet all those different needs that are yeah, arising. Mixtures of their emotional. Yeah. One one boy tried to burn the school down. He threw a firebomb under the stage and. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> things like oh. that. One one murdered several women, elderly women. Oh my gosh! And he's still in prison for life. But wow. I didn't I didn't teach that one. So. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> you can't lay any claim to. <laughs> it was quite quite an interesting. Yeah, I wonder where you even get a firebomb to throw underneath. <laughs> I, or did he make it? <laughs> he, he made it. He made it up with a bottle of gasoline and something. Oh sure. Okay. Wow. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> so, now, when you transferred to Atlanta, um, you and Rachel, um, did y'all live in the city, or did y'all live in a suburb, and you worked with the uh, with um, Bell South, or how did that? How did that work? We lived, we lived in the Centerville area, uh, out by Stone Mountain. Um, a friend of mine from Pensacola days was lived in that area and worked mm. in Bell South. So okay. We found a house in that area, about 25 miles from downtown. Oh, okay. Atlanta. Wow. Okay. And um, um, I had a train of thought. Where did it go? <laughs> I have that happen all the time. Commuted in, into um, Atlanta from there. Oh, when we when I moved to Atlanta, it was supposed to be a three-year rotational assignment with Southern Bell, um, and working in a headquarters capacity, and then I would go back to North Florida somewhere, not necessarily Pensacola. Uh, uh -huh. it probably would have been Jacksonville. Our girls were transitioning from elementary to middle school during those three years. And it was really traumatic from for them to move from Pensacola to Atlanta, lose all their friends and all of that. Sure. Uh, so I, I, I didn't want to go back to North Florida. So I was able to maintain headquarters type uh, assignments oh, okay. for the next twenty wow. years. That's great. Now, from the moment y'all arrived, did you go to was it Mount Zor? We went to Zor United Methodist, oh, Zor, okay. uh, which is the oldest continually charted United Methodist Church in Georgia. Wow, okay, wow. In 1811. Wow. It's um, in Centerville, small clapboard church. Uh -huh. uh, very, very friendly, loving people, much like we have here at, at sure. LJ First. Yeah. What, what led y'all there, of all the churches, that are, all the Methodist churches in that area? Like St. Mark in Pensacola being in our neighborhood. Uh -huh. Oh, gotcha. Zor <laughs> was the close, closest United Methodist Church. And most of the others were large, like mm. Snellville First sure. and some of the others. <clears throat> so um, we visited there immediately. I was doing a lot of traveling with my job then. Um, but we never we never went anywhere else after visiting Zor. Oh, really? And another God's incident uh, of, of going to Zor. You mentioned Becky um, before mm -hmm. we started. Uh -huh. the, <clears throat> the pastor at Zor then was Reverend Chuck Moon. Oh, yeah. And we loved him. Great preacher, great musician, great voice, and all of that. Um, <clears throat> so we, we were going to, to Zor, and Becky came to live with us for a little while. Oh, really? Oh, okay. And Shortly after we started going, Chuck and another couple from the church came to visit us oh, on okay. a Sunday afternoon. Uh -huh. 
welcoming to the church and all that. So we're in the living room having this pastoral visit with Chuck. And <clears throat> Becky was in the kitchen. She got some coffee and cookies and stuff uh -huh. and brought them in to us in the living room. Becky was gorgeous, a little redhead, and Chuck was not married. Oh. And when she walked into the room, the pastoral visit was kind of over. <laughs> sure. Um, and in subsequent weeks, he invited Becky to show her Gwinnett County and up uh -huh. to Brasstown Bald and all of that. Okay, wow. Uh, the end of that pastoral year, he was moved to Tillman UMC in Smyrna. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were actually dating by that time okay, yeah. and the next year they were married oh wow <laughs> sure. were married for the next 31 years until uh, Reverend Moon and Chuck passed away oh, in sure. March of last year yeah I do remember you talking about that was he was he formative too in your decision to go yeah, to seminary yeah he really was we <clears throat> we differed greatly on political and social issues sure, yeah. um, but not in any way on theological issues sure so we had wonderful discussions about that. And he was a brilliant, brilliant man. Yeah. My key to talking with Chuck always was, Chuck, how can somebody so smart be so wrong? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I know a few people. Yeah, we, yeah. we loved each other to the end. I love that, yeah. There aren't, at least right now, it doesn't seem like there are as many relationships like that in the world where you can disagree, but you still love one another and Absolutely. you maintain a close connection. I'm hopeful for more stories like that as we move into the future. I, I certainly hope that that can happen. Now, what brought uh, Miss Becky from Florida to, or was she still in Florida? She was in Florida. She grew up, as Rachel did, in Panama City, mm -hmm. and she was a dental hygienist. Okay. And um, she had been through some changes in life, and she's done a number of things. A wonderful photographer. Oh, uh -huh. things. But she was, she was looking kind of for a new start um, when she came to visit with us. But years later, I mean, she went back to Panama City, and years later, her uh, Rachel and Becky's mom was dying of cancer, yeah. and she, um, uh, Becky and Chuck were. She, Becky had moved to Augusta by then with Chuck. They were living in Augusta after 17 years in Smyrna. I got this a little bit out of sequence. Yeah. So their mom came up to live with Becky and Chuck in Augusta. Okay. But Becky and. Um, Actually, when she and Chuck married, she moved, you know, you know with Chuck to Smyrna at that time. So okay. not a move back to Florida. But um, her mom was living in Augusta. Uh, she went through her death, you know, process. Yeah. And um, we did her memorial there and in you know, Panama City. Uh, but when Chuck died last year, um, Becky wanted to be close to the only family she has left, which is us. Sure. And our grandchildren, who are her grand yeah, yeah. so just within you know the last five months, she's moved here to Ellington. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and she doesn't live. Make, make meets a stranger anywhere. Yeah. She never. I've kind of not makes a friend. Yeah, I've kind of <laughs> gathered. I've kind of <laughs> gathered that. Um, and she lives not far from y'all now, right? Yeah, she, well, one mile. One mile. Walk. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> So with all of this and your time, all that time spent sort of in Centerville, the Snailville area uh, working, and then you retired, you went to seminary, 
how did y'all end up in LA? What prompted that? We wanted to escape Atlanta traffic, <laughs> Atlanta metro traffic. We both had an affinity for the mountains. Uh, Rachel jokes that I tried to take her to Montana, but she, <laughs> being a lifelong Floridian and Georgian, was not going to do that. So sure. We actually started looking for places in the Helen area. Oh, yeah. Fairly mm -hmm. close to buying a place in Sky Lake. Mm -hmm. um, but another lady who visits here at LJ First frequently but lived, was a good friend of ours down there in Snellville. Um, they haven't had a house here uh, by the golf course. And she had survived uh, a really bad bout with lymphoma many yeah. years ago. And she had a fundraiser every year for the Lymphoma Society. And she auctioned off silent things. You know, One of the things she auctioned off every year was a weekend at their house in Elegy. Ah. So Rachel and I and another couple bid on that, mm -hmm. and we won it. So we ah. came to LJ, never having been here before, and stayed at Jeff Lawanda's house. Oh, like okay. That. Okay. Um, and said, okay, we're not going back to Helen at all. <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, wow. Okay. We want to be at LJ. Sure. And we immediately started looking uh, at places, um, and it was subsequent with my beginning seminary and all of that but if you remember the end of 2000 was the housing market crash so we were not able to sell our house we had it on and off the market for four years oh, wow uh, we bought our cabin here in 2009 but only came occasionally and came to church when we were here but we finally sold our house in 2012. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we moved here in December of 2012. Sure. And at that point in time, had you finished with seminary? or? Yeah, I graduated seminary in 2010. Okay. So I was still working in hospice, and that was a part of it also, uh, finding a position in hospice here in sure. LJ. And that also came to fruition in uh, 2012. Okay, okay, great. Now, who was the pastor here at the time when y'all first started? Um, actually, Gil McGinnis was okay. here. I've heard of him. Yeah. As we were visiting, we had not yet moved here. Sure. And, um, so Gil was transferred over to um, the Athens area, and Danny Barton came. So mm -hmm. our real association with the church was during Danny Barton's years. Gotcha. Now, what um, part of this answer I know just as a provisional deacon um, that you have to be associated with a church despite wherever you may, you may be appointed. But what, what uh, kept y'all here, <laughs> here associated with this church as opposed to another Methodist church? Uh, actually, the first church we visited, it was that weekend that we had the house. Mm -hmm. uh, there, we went to Oak Hill. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, because we, we do like small churches. Oh, yeah. Check it out. And we had, there were actually three other couples with us. So there were eight of us that weekend. And we went to Oak Hill. With the eight of us, I think there were 21 people there. Oh, sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and several of those people later came back to LJ first. Oh, really? Okay. And um, it, was just, it was just too small. So we, <gasps> sure. we did that one Sunday. And then the next time we came up, we came here. Gil was preaching. We met many loving people who oh, invited yeah. us to Sunday school right away. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's how we ended up here. Oh, sure. And, and as you say, 
probably most people don't realize that when you're going through the ordination process, you yeah. have to, you're yeah. associated with a church, yeah. whether you're appointed to it or not, mm -hmm. or not. But as deacons, as you and I are, we're not officially appointed to a church, usually. Yeah. Um, um, and in my case, being working in hospice as a chaplain, that qualified as um, an appointment. Under the yeah, yeah, of so course, yeah, of course. I was never officially appointed to this church. Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people realize that. You've shared that before, and I have experienced it, is that a lot of people thought that you were actually... Um, appointed to, employed by the church because you do so much for the church and I think people are just surprised and that's that's something sort of that I aspire to as a deacon because I know that I won't always be here um, and um, I don't know why they made me the associate, that's <laughs> still a mystery to me, I don't but besides the fact like that's what I aspire to be as I because I do, like you, I, I, I don't see myself as a pulpit um, preacher. I don't see myself as ordering the life of the church or casting visions for the church. That's not, that's not my gift. Um, I'm still not sure what my gift is, but I know that it's like taking the church out there. Like, I, I do know that. I, I, uh, there's not a whole lot that I know, but I do feel, <laughs> I do feel that. And I, you know, I have thought about chaplaincy too, but don't even really know where to start. And right now I was told, don't try to start while you're in the residency process because it will be too much work to get that certification plus the other, plus finish all of your, your paperwork. <laughs> Yeah. Remember what I said earlier about don't undersell your oh, yeah. <laughs> undersell yourself no. and embrace your gifts that God will lead you. Oh yes, yeah. I do believe that. I'm just still not sure where where I'd be led, but I guess that's okay. What is it Jesus tells Peter? He's like as you get older you'll be yoked and led where you did not want to go. <laughs> um, I've had that happen on occasion, led where I did not want to <laughs> to go. Uh, so, um, I guess to, there are two things I guess to wrap up. Uh, for whoever may listen to this, what would you want them to know about God as you've experienced God? Alan? Wow. I guess totally trust God with whatever he might call you to do. Mm. <laughs> or um, enlighten you as to what your gift is and that once you receive that enlightenment or that call it may be really uncomfortable yeah oh. you know I never in the world would have expected <clears throat> even that I would have joined joined Sid on his visits to sick people or older elderly people yeah. um, and yet, that was that was God's leading totally. Yeah. Things that happened. It was, and I think once once I accepted it, then it really wasn't uncomfortable anymore. Sure. It was really uncomfortable going back to college after thirty-four years of not being in the classroom. I bet. Uh, but that was a wonderful experience too. Oh sure. Going through seminary. So that's it. Be open. To however, wherever, whenever God 
chooses to use you. Mm. Wonder, yeah. And I guess a final question, and this one's just for fun. As someone from Florida, um, how would you sell hot chocolate to someone in Florida in the summer? As a <laughs> Is it possible <laughs> in, in those conditions? <laughs> um, I think chocolate gets a bad rap. Oh. <laughs> uh -huh. it, it's really a wonderful substance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, Florida has a lot of good things. Sunshine, orange juice, beaches, all of those go better with chocolate. Mm. Good. That's a good. That's, I think that's a good answer. And eventually it'll cool off, and so then it's just like chocolate drink. It's like yoo hoo or something. <laughs> well, it's really good to put chocolate in the freezer and get it good and hard. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Alan, would you like to say a prayer to close our time together? I'd be honored to do that. Yeah, thanks, Alan. Yeah. A gracious and loving God, um, you are God. You are our leader you are our savior you are our friend you never do anything um, that would harm us you offer us opportunities to join you and to walk beside you to be filled with your holy spirit and through him to know you better and to walk to walk your way in this world we often do not know where that road is leading us. It may seem dark. It may seem winding. We may question you. Why, Lord, do you have me on this road? But you always know best. And when we will surrender ourselves to your leading and go where you would take us, uh, we find eventually as we look back that the, that the road was, was lightened, that it was not dark. And that it was, even though it seemed windy, it was straight to where you would have us to go to fulfill the purpose for which we were made in the beginning. So uh, that is our quest, Lord. Uh, help us to not be too unsure of ourselves or too humble that we fail to realize the gift that you've given us and the call that you put on our lives. And I thank you for Sam and the call that you put on his life and your leading in his life be with us as we um, as we join this day and see where you lead us we pray in Christ's holy name Amen Amen. and I, I just thought of one more question I, I can't believe I haven't I, I think I've always wanted to ask it but didn't know how and you don't have to answer but in, in all of your work as a chaplain uh, especially in hospice in those moments those liminal moments you know in, when people are close to death um, what has maybe been your most powerful experience like with reference to to God at work in those moments like I, I, I've heard profound I haven't I mean I've, I had my I had my pastoral care unit like my um, pastoral education unit uh, where I had some moments but I've heard from those who do it long term who submit and dedicate themselves to that I've heard just incredible stories about the experience they have like with God and with people and through others in those moments and I wondered if you had one that comes to mind 
Yeah, a lot of them, but oh. I'll <laughs> um, preface that by saying invariably when people talk to those, not just chaplains, but anybody that works in hospice, they say, oh man, that must be so hard. Okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when I went into that first patient's room out in social circle, I was scared to death. Yeah. <laughs> I was scared to death. And I went in and that piece that I mentioned earlier uh, was just there. <clears throat> um, being with a person who is dying or being with the loved one of a person that is dying is a holy moment. Okay. And that's the liminal moments that you're talking about. They take many forms. Um, but it's never, you do not have sympathy for the person who is dying. You empathize with them as a fellow child of God even if they're totally agnostic, atheistic, Buddhist, mm -hmm. or whatever. Sure. It's a person of God that's there. And um, the leadings that God gave to me were that it, do it doesn't matter what they are. It doesn't matter where they've been. It doesn't matter who you are, except that I brought you to this moment. Mm -hmm. And you first listen you feel about and for them and in a way Jesus is saying you are me to that person for this time that we're together mm -hmm. so holding the hand of a person who takes their final breath is a holy moment um, letting them know that regardless of where they are theologically what God they believe in or do not believe in one at all. That just by being there in love, I'm not trying to sell any religion, yeah. just being there in love helps them to leave the world in a little better peace mm. than probably they lived much of their life. Mm. So I don't, I don't think I specifically answered your question That's about okay. a particular incident, but as a whole, those 12 years of experiences yeah. were a gift of God. Thank you for listening. From the Other Side of the Pulpit is a production of the L.J. First United Methodist Church. Original idea by the Reverend Dr. John T. Brady. Title and concept by Marianne Evans. Written and produced by me, Sam Butcher.